Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Salt Lake Tribune religion reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack writes that some Mormons and plenty of others were appalled to witness their church build a $1.5 billion mall in downtown Salt Lake City and hear their prophet proclaim, let's go shopping. Isn't religion, they argued, supposed to be about feeding the hungry and clothing the poor? How is selling Tiffany jewelry, Nordstrom cocktail dresses, and luxury condos any part of a Christian faith? That's the introduction to her report on historian Michael Quinn's book, The Mormon Hierarchy, Wealth and Corporate Power. Quinn, by the way, says that the LDS Church sees its mission as serving both spiritual and physical needs of its people. The Friends of Merrill Kazir Library Spring Lecture is featuring Michael Quinn discussing his book, and the lecture is tonight, 7 o'clock, Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101. It's free and open to the public. A California native, Michael Quinn served in U.S. military intelligence for three years and joined the research writing staff of church historian Leonard Arrington before attending Yale University's for his Ph.D. After 12 years of professorship at BYU, he became an independent scholar. His last academic position was in Yale's Department of History, and his works include Elder Statesman, a biography of J. Reuben Clark. Early Mormonism and the Magic World View, Same-Sex Dynamics Among 19th Century Americans, a Mormon Example, and the Mormon Hierarchy Series. His books have received awards from the American Historical Association, John Whitmer Historical Association, and Mormon History Association, and we have him in studio for the hour. Michael Cohen, pleasure to welcome you in. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, so I want to uh, to start with the the series. This is you spent a lot of time over many years on this uh, now three volume series, the Mormon Hierarchy. Uh, what was your interest in starting this? Well, it began, uh, it's embarrassing how long ago it began, but it began in September 1971 when I was a student in a a two-term course at the University of Utah starting my um, master's program there in history, and it was about historical methods, and one of the methods that we learned about in the first term was group biography, and in the second term, we were supposed to write a uh, 30 to 40 page paper using one of the methods that we learned about in the first. And I chose group biography and I end up deciding that I knew more about the church leadership at that time than I did about the U.S. Senate or other groups I could have chosen. And so I, I as a, really as a practical reason, I, I chose that. I could do more of the research and have something prepared in an easier time period. And that practical decision eventually led, as the professor intended, that our papers would become the beginning of our master's theses. This became the uh, topic of my master's thesis. And then when I went to Yale, my advisor there said he thought it was completely uh, uh, expected that I would continue that for the PhD, so it became the PhD dissertation. And then I was distracted f- with other teaching assignments and other book projects, and so the first volume of the published version of this came out in 1994, and it's called Origins of Power. It dealt uh, with the Joseph Smith period of Mormonism and ended with Brigham Young's arrival in the Salt Lake Valley. The second volume dealt from 1848, uh, the year after he arrived, to 1996, and that was called Extensions of Power. And then this most recent volume, 
uh, had a 20-year gap because I, again, was working on other things and, and delayed continuing my work on this. But this deals with uh, business and finance of the uh, Mormon Church, or LDS Church, from 1830 to 2010. And people say, well, why did you choose 2010 and not the year of publication? And part of that uh, is that the... Uh, the annual reports, uh, which I cite in the, uh, particularly the third chapter of this, uh, have a, in some cases, a year or two year delay before they're due. And so anytime I would choose a date that I was going to end, I'd have to wait a year or two after that before I could actually finish the research. And I decided that I didn't want to do that and, and it ended up being a convenient thing to just end it in 2010. Mm. Before we get back into some history, you you estimate the uh, the financial worth of the of the church today. It has to be estimates, right? The church yes. doesn't doesn't make their the records uh, public in that way. What's your estimate? It's in the things in the billions. Well, yes, it is, and it's based on the tithing uh, reports annual that I had access to. Uh, in the 1970s, and I had tithing uh, and total tithing from the 1890s to the 19, uh, early 1960s. And uh, on the basis of the growth rate in the 1950s, uh, which I felt was conservative because there were two recessions during the 1950s which would have lowered people's abilities to pay tithing, uh, but on the basis of those continued annual growth rates during the 1950s, I pr- made a projection of what the annual growth would be on a straight-line projection from 1960 onward. And I tested that with the annual uh, totals that I already had for 1961 and 62, and my projection was below the actual receipts at LDS headquarters. So I thought it was uh, demonstrably conservative. But over a period from the 1960 to 2010, uh, it resulted in $33 billion of annual tithing income in 2010. Now, I want to treat this, before we get into some of the history, I want want to treat this, uh, give some people heartburn, and Peggy Fletcher Stack, I quoted her from her uh, review of your book, um, that uh, you know the church was able to, willing and and wanted to, uh, I, I think by by itself, build this big mall in in uh, downtown Salt Lake City. And the church president says, "Let's go shopping." And it's uh, <laughs> you know, as as Peggy Fletcher Stack writes, uh, "What is Nordstrom cocktail dresses, luxury condos, uh, Tiffany jewelry? What does that have to do with faith?" And so there's this this tension. This is not only the LDS Church, the other religions. You could cite the Catholic Church as having huge holdings. Um, I wonder if you talk a little bit about that. Right. Well, I think it's good that you mentioned the Catholic Church because the LDS Church is unique in its concept of this this issue. Um, in other churches, uh, Catholic, Protestant, other religions, Jewish, uh, Islam. Uh, the connection of one's spirituality with making money 
or a business activity is a decision of the individual to do all things for the Lord so that an individual will say, this is a part of my relationship with God. And so when I invest in my money or when I make profit off selling cows or selling real estate or whatever it might be in one's uh, culture, that this is the individual is making this as a part of his or her relationship with God. But in Mormonism, and it's not bottom up that way. In Mormonism, uh, an early revelation given in August 1830 to Joseph Smith uh, had God declaring that all things to God are spiritual. And he said, never at any time have I given a temporal commandment. And so you have in the Doctrine and Covenants revelations Joseph Smith dictated, thus saith the Lord, about operating tanneries, operating a hotel, operating stores, operating a printing office. And this continued under his successors. Brigham Young dictated a revelation in the Salt Lake Tabernacle about uh, investing in a railroad. And his successor, John Taylor, in the 1880s, dictated written revelations about investing in gold mines and silver mines. And so the, the Mormon view is that it's a top-down um, relationship of money and one's individual spirituality because God himself uh, makes no distinction between the temporal and the spiritual. And so um, I think Orson Pratt, I mean Orson Hyde, an apostle of the LDS Church in the 1860s, put it most directly. He said, when it comes to dollars and cents, that too is spiritual to us. And so a century after that, Hugh B. Brown, who was a a counselor in the first presidency, said that Mormonism does not have a gulf between the temporal and the spiritual, between making money and and doing good works uh, for the kingdom of God, because in the Mormon view, they're all a part of one's spiritual relationship with God, as God himself has declared. And then Hubie Brown used uh, an American corporate term to describe God. He said, God is the CEO of the universe. And by extension, he's the CEO of the uh, LDS Church and all its business activities. So although to many, the, the existence of a mall is, is itself a problem, the money invested in that, that mall or shopping center is, is even more of a problem, but both the existence and the money spent are consistent with Mormon business. And in my view, the business of Mormonism has always been business, and even before that 1830 revelation, in uh, 1829, the uh, reluctant printer of Palmyra expected a $3,000 cash advance to print the Book of Mormon. And uh, Joseph Smith obtained that from Martin Harris, who mortgaged his farm and eventually sold it to pay that amount of money. Uh, and the Revelation told Martin Harris not to covet his own property, mm-hmm. but to use it for the building of the kingdom. Well, uh, the church itself was founded on the basis of a, a new, new book of scripture being published by a commercial loan. Mm. And uh, in 
today's terms, the 20th century terms, that was no small amount of money. It it was equal to about $72,000 in purchasing power. So um, I, you know, I, whether one is comfortable with this Mormon view or not, it is the Mormon view. It's in, it's inscribed in written revelation, and I don't think it will ever change. And unique, you're saying, in that it's bound up in Scripture, and it's and it's it's top down. It's God declaring that there is no distinction. Whereas in most religions, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, there is a sense of a a divide between the temporal and the spiritual, and that it's up to the individual to declare that they're one in his or her relationship with God. And if the person doesn't, then the person doesn't. Whereas in Mormonism, it's God saying to all of the believers in the Mormon theology and the Mormon doctrines that God himself merges the temporal and the spiritual, and that he does not acknowledge any separation between them. So for Mormons, it's as spiritual to uh, make make money off, off of retail sales as it is to pay or give money for the poor. Mm. How would you connect this up to the law of consecration, which was— um which, which maybe flows the other way. You're not, you're, you know, you're you're mandated to give up all of your access right. to the community. What what that did was that you were to give all of your access, but you were allowed to uh, profit off your excess. But then your profits, you were to give ten percent to the church annually on your profits after you've consecrated it. And that became the law of tithing under Joseph Smith. So that we we praise the converts of early Mormonism, but we don't realize that part of their obligation was to give 10% of everything they owned at the time they were baptized into the church and give that to the church, and then 10% after that. And so um, that requirement was re- reduced under Brigham Young, and uh, so 10% is all that is required, whether you're a convert or a longtime member of the church, the 10% annually. But this, this idea of consecration did not stop the possibility of making profit off what you had left, but the idea was that the profit of what you had left was also going to go to the Lord. Mm. No, and I'm not connecting these, but it, it's kind of uh, this intertwining in terms of belief. In, you know, there's, there's no temporal, there's only spiritual. Uh, could lead one to, to kind of on a parallel track, think about the uh, you know, prosperity theology. Right. Which uh, some LDS leaders have, have essentially counteracted. Brigham Young, for example, I think Brigham Young, early leaders of the, of the LDS church, um, railed against concentration of wealth in, in too few hands. Right, and they, uh, in this joint, I mean, joint proclamations by the uh, First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve are rare. Uh, and this one came out in 1875, near the end of Brigham Young's life and leadership, in which they said that it was a threat to democracy uh, itself, for the uh, concentration of wealth 
to be in the hands of so few people as it was during a period that American historians call the Gilded Age or the Robber Baron Age when there was no federal taxation on incomes and uh, and the uh, incomes of the wealthy were allowing them to have these lavish um, lifestyles when children in the streets were uh, starving, basically, in New York and other cities. Um, But that did not prevent Brigham Young from dying a millionaire two years later. Mm. So there's a certain irony in that. Uh, And he saw that, in his view, the the, um, culture and the economy of, of... the uh, Great Basin Kingdom, which he had presided over for 30 years and more, um, allowed for the, the betterment of all people in a way that the general economics of the 1870s did not in America. And to some extent, that, that's true, um, that there were uh, lots of provisions for the poor uh, in the Great Basin Kingdom that he established, whereas there were none uh, set up by the governments of the 1870s. So there is this tension, and I think any time you have large amounts of money, you're going to have tension. But I think it's it's uh, an issue where, uh, in in the Mormon view, making a lot of money is not a bad thing. It's what you do with it. Uh, and for me, it's a similar kind of problem with power. Power is inevitable in my view. Parents have power over children. Older siblings have power over younger siblings. And it goes on and on throughout various segments of society. It's what you do with power. How do you exercise the power that you have, whether you're a parent or an older sibling or a CEO of a company? And uh, that is determines whether power is good or bad. And, I'm, I, and I think the same applies to wealth. If you have great wealth, how do you use it? How do you manage your life? How do you re- regard the, quote, other who uh, masses of people who don't have anything approaching the wealth that you might have? And, uh, and I think that those are the issues that all people should be concerned about. And that in Mormonism, uh, that is a part of the, the uh, gospel of wealth, if you will. Now, the, the Mormon view should not be the Protestant view, which uh, is the gospel of wealth, is that God makes you wealthy because he loves you more. Um, in Mormon uh, terms, that is untenable. That does not apply because God loves all his children equally, and we're here on earth to experience a variety of, of things, and that poverty may be one of them. Sickness is certainly one of them, and disadvantages of one kind or another are part of everyone's experience, and it doesn't have anything to do with uh, the amount of love or attention that God has for all his children. And so recognizing that there are these financial diversities and economic and that children go hungry every night and some children throughout the world starve, it's a question of, all right, those who have a comfortable life, what are you going to do about it? Mm. 
Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Michael Quinn, a historian, author most recently of the third volume in his Mormon Hierarchy series. It's the Mormon Hierarchy, Wealth and Corporate Power. And he's giving a lecture, Friends of Merrill Kazir Library, a spring lecture featuring uh, Dr. Quinn uh, discussing uh, the book. And that's tonight, 7 o'clock, Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101, free and open to the public. We'll have more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cafe Ibis Deli at 52 Federal Avenue in Logan, featuring triple certified coffee, espresso bar, and grab-and-go food items every day, Monday through Saturday, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., Sundays, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Information at CafeIbis.com. Did you know that parental involvement in youth sports programs can strengthen family relationships? Research on the impact of parental involvement in their children's sports participation, the role of sport participation on family relationships and parent-child interaction, and the outcomes of parent support and pressure in youth and adolescent sports contexts have been highlighted in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Chicago Tribune. This research is also being used by youth sport leagues, administrators, and parents to build effective sport programs that support youth development. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is historian Michael Quinn. He's author uh, uh, earlier of um, Early Mormon Mormonism, The Magic Worldview, Same-Sex Dynamics Among 19th Century Americans, a Mormon example, and the Mormon Hierarchy series. And we're talking about volume three in that series, uh, which is called Wealth and Corporate Power. Michael Quinn will, is on the USU campus. He's with us in studio, and uh, he will give the spring lecture for the Friends of Merrill Kazir Library, and uh, that's on the book, Mormon Hierarchy, Wealth, and Corporate Power. And that is uh, tonight, 7 o'clock, Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101. That's free and open to the, to the public. So, Michael Quinn, you, as you point out, um, economic, the financial history of Mormonism, begins with a personal loan. Right uh, to, to finance the publication of the of the the Book of Mormon, um, and then it's a it's a history of of ups and downs. Of course, uh, they're, they're, the the early leaders are subsistence farmers and uh, pretty humble people. Right. Uh, by the time you get to uh, get get to Utah, Great Basin Kingdom, uh, to make an allusion to Leonard Arrington, who you worked with. Um, then you started to build wealth, and that was concentrated with the church, with its leaders. Um, but then other ups and downs with with polygamy, the, right, the, and the it confiscation of property. It, it was it was just ups and downs, including I learned from you, from your book. Um, I hadn't been aware of uh, the financial troubles, uh, pretty severe financial troubles, as late as the fifties and sixties. Right, and the concentration of wealth was uh, not strictly according to one's status in the church. Uh, One of my appendixes in the book, uh, in fact, I think it's the first one, deals with general authorities who had less than average wealth in Utah. And uh, this was surprising to me when I found it 
because I didn't expect this, but what I found was that uh, senior members of the Quorum of the Twelve and other general authorities, there were years uh, when they had uh, less than average wealth by comparison to what the the in, de, in the personal wealth of other residents of Salt Lake County, which was what I used as my uh, my data set, uh, the annual assessments for property taxes, and so uh, m- merely having the high prestige position of an apostle in Mormon society did not guarantee you income, and so there were apostles who had very moderate income and wealth throughout their lives, and there were others who were comfortable, and then there were some who were wealthy. But it, it was, there was no guarantee, it really, and there was no salary system up until the death of Brigham Young. And after Brigham Young died in 1877, in August, in October, the, under the presiding apostle John Taylor the, uh, there was a salary system established so that the men didn't have to go to the president of the church every time they needed money, as had been true under Brigham Young, and essentially hat in hand beg for money for whatever reason. Instead, they, re- they had an, uh, an annual amount, and it was stratified. The president of the church received the most, his counselors the next, senior quorum members uh, the next, and then junior the next, and this kind of stratified system uh, continued down to 1966. And at that time, David O. McKay, uh, president of the church, equalized the the living allowance so that all general authorities, whether the president of the church or the newest appointment as a full-time, lifetime general authority, all received the same uh, annual compensation, although it was paid on a monthly basis, and that continues to the present. Uh, in and in some cases, uh, the, the you know the church leaders are being paid uh, less than some of the, I guess the bureaucratic experts. Right, with documents that uh, were published um, in the Salt Lake Tribune and elsewhere uh, a couple of years ago, we know that this the standardized. Um, a living allowance annually was increased to $120,000 in, in 2014 for all general authorities from the president to the most recent general authority. And but with comparing the $120,000 living allowance for the president to a charity, a well-known charity, the Red Cross, that same year, the Red Cross's CEO is making $500,000 a salary. And and so in both cases, that's that's the base amount. Anything extra, which is called benefits, um, is not known in either case. They're not spelled out either for the Red Cross or for the LDS Church. But typically the bulk of compensation that a a person receives is in that base amount. And uh, so with the president of the church in a 24-7 kind of job, which for which there's no retirement, one serves there and as, as one is able to until one dies, 
making only less than a fourth of what the president of the or CEO of the Red Cross makes for essentially an eight to maybe eight job that is only five days a week and then has a nice retirement after 20 years or whatever. It's extraordinary uh, that there is this disparity, but the leaders who could give themselves a far handsomer amount of, of compensation, they do not in the LDS Church. In fact, you have said that this, is at least this latest volume, should be seen as reassuring to the I members think. of the church, right? You, you found no malfeasance, no misuse of funds, um, and what we've been talking about, salary. Right, and the billions of dollars that uh, you know, tithing as well as commercial income, profits from for-profit businesses, uh, proceeds from the investment uh, income, that is used in the church. Those help to support the international church. And what I found by examining the detailed financial reports that are required annually of all churches uh, throughout the world outside the United States is that the church, even in industrial countries like the United Kingdom, um, subsidizes those about 50% or more and third world countries like Tonga and the Philippines, it's 90% or more subsidy every year that the church pays. Well, if the church didn't have these billions of dollars of income from both tithing and its commercial side, uh, the international church couldn't exist to the level it does now, and it certainly couldn't expand. And so I, I you know, it, I think that should be some comfort to those members of the church who are uncomfortable with the uh, knowledge that there are and have been and continue to be billions of dollars invested commercially, as in the City Creek uh, Center, uh, as well as billions of dollars of income from tithing and other sources. I wonder if you could uh, tell me a little bit about this, the, the, kind of the latest iteration of financial crisis for the church. I'd been unaware of this. The late 50s, early 60s, some pretty heavy heavy deficit spending. Right. And this is, um, I'll step back and say that the, the trajectory of the LDS church is an American success story financially. If, if Just if you look at that financially, that is without parallel. Because the LDS Church, for an 11-year period, uh, experienced a confiscation of all of its assets above $50,000, all of its uh, land and property, and all of its uh, cash and other personal property was seized by the federal government in 1887 and wasn't returned until the uh, late 1890s. And then every... 20 to 30 years after that, for various reasons, the church financially was on the brink of bankruptcy. And the last time that occurred was in the early 1960s. And uh, the reasons were different each time this occurred. But uh, when it, it was uh, in the ni- early 1960s, by 1963, according to a biography written by a general authority, of N. Eldon Tanner when he became the uh, appointed steward of church finance in 1963. That was the year that the church's financial 
uh, directors didn't think they'd be able to meet the payroll for church employees. So the payroll for uh, what was Rick's College at that time in Idaho, BYU, and the church headquarters bureaucracy and administration, that was under threat because the church had many, many resources, but these resources were not liquid. They couldn't be used to pay immediate financial obligations. So that was the situation when N. Eldon Tanner came in as a multimillionaire himself from Canada, and he transformed the financial operations of the LDS Church, uh, moved the church from the brink, put it on solid financial basis, and expanded the investments uh, and used an investment approach that has continued to the present. And uh, so the, the church's income from both tithing and commercial sources became a, a stable source of, of financial security to the church. And the church has not experienced anything like that again since 1963. And the greatest e- example of that is that beginning in the late 1980s, church headquarters began reducing the obligations of rank-and-file Mormons beyond tithing. Back prior to that, if the uh, uh, church built a new chapel uh, or a new stake center, members of the church locally had to contribute a very sizable amount of of the construction costs. And then once the the building was dedicated and, and was being used, there was a monthly or at least a yearly expectation that they would pay for the maintenance of the buildings. And then there were special temple building requirements. And then there were uh, requirements for missionaries, um, families to pay, and missionaries who were in, in third world countries and didn't have to have much on a monthly basis to support them. But those who were serving in New York City or London or Paris or, uh, or uh, Tokyo or other very, very expensive cities, their parents had to pay a huge amount of money to support them. Well, Beginning in the 1980s, the church made all that standardized. It, re- it eliminated the budget requirements to maintain buildings. It eliminated the construction requirements so that members no longer had to pay for the construction of their chapels. And it regularized the monthly uh, amount for missionaries to a standard no matter where they were. And so that somebody in Paris serving his or her mission paid no more than somebody out in the, in the rural area of Mexico or Ghana or wherever. And uh, this deeply re- reduced the burden of rank-and-file Mormons because many of them uh, pay, were paying not just 10% of their annual income but 15 or 20% annually because of all these additional um, expectations. Well, during the Great Recession, uh, after all of these um, uh, reforms had been established that benefited the rank and file and made their obligation limited only to the um, tithing, during the Great Recession, when all financial institutions throughout the world experienced a nosedive from 2007 
until really 2012, the LDS Church did not go through any financial retrenchment. It did not require members to resume those those obligations financially that the church had assumed since the late 1980s. And that's a dramatic example that the tithing and the financial corporate income of the church enabled the church to weather that that years-long financial disaster that brought banks into into, uh, uh, bankruptcy. Some of the greatest financial institutions in Europe, the UK, and America crumbled during that time. The church did not have to retrench. And, and so that, that fact alone indicates the success of the church in avoiding those kinds of financial declines that had been about every 20 or 30 years after the church received back its confiscated uh, properties from the federal government. There just is no American comparison to that, uh, whether you're looking at a church or whether you're looking at a corporation or a charity that has experienced that kind of trajectory from the brink or even below the brink of bankruptcy to uh, uh, the position where the church is receiving billions and has in its um, in its reserve fund, which is, is kept back from uh, annual expenditures, billions of dollars to invest financially. And, and that figure of billions of dollars is not my own invention or guess. The head of one of the churches, and the church has multiple financial institutions that invest its funds, the CEO of just one of them in 2003 said that his uh, enterprise invested billions of dollars every day. Hmm. Uh, so an American success story without parallel, you're saying, in a, at least in financial terms. Um, what's the main factor, do you think? This is uh, brought in President Tanner. He, I guess, corporate investment. I mean, there are other institutions that have not had this kind of financial uh, success what's what what has made the difference then well with the emphasis that lorenzo snow began making in the year 1900 on paying tithing a commandment that had been on the book so to speak in published revelation since 1838 but there'd been a haphazard observance of in 1900 he strenuously urged the members of the church to do everything they could to pay an annual or a monthly uh, 10% of their income. And, uh, and that began a transformation. At that time, the uh, LDS headquarters was in debt $2.5 million. And because of the response of members, including widows paying their their pennies and children uh, donating their pennies, that uh, the church in a three-year period was able to pay off half of that debt. And then another three years paid off the remaining amount. So then in 1907, the president of the church, who at that time was Joseph F. Smith, announced, we do not owe a cent that we cannot pay immediately. We are in debt to nobody. Well, 
this is the basis for the financial growth of the church. The, the commercial income and, and many general authorities, including uh, the recently deceased Gordon B. Hinckley, said to General Conference and elsewhere that the commercial income would only keep the church going for a short period of time, that if the tithing dried up, if, if the members of the church no longer sacrificed from children to widows to those who were making uh, subsistence salaries to the very wealthy, if they didn't pay tithing, that commercial income would eventually evaporate and they could not sustain the church. So the, as has been stated ever since 1900 with Lorenzo Snow, the church could not survive without the dedication and the faith and devotion of rank-and-file members paying a 10% tithing. And some pay even more than that if they're able to. And, and that, you know, that is wonderful. But many are struggle to do so. And in the Philippines, for example, national studies indicate that members of a typical Filipino family uh, have one meal a day, and the, their, their families cannot afford to pay more than that. Well, where does tithing come from? And uh, the, this, this is a reality that, that many children, in Mormon children in the third world, go to bed hungry every night, often with just one meal a, a day. And, uh, and those families in many cases, are paying the tithing that they can pay. I mean, this is, this is uh, overwhelming. So it's, it's not just the wealthy, the Marriott's and the others who have millions of dollars of income on which they pay their tithing. It's also those who are struggling to pay on a very little amount. And in, 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 in by paying tithing, they may not have enough to put food on the table mm. for their children. Do you think in those areas that uh, requirement should be adjusted? Well, I think um, in those areas where, in some cases, the governments do not provide a, a, a safety net, as is called uh, in, in um, social programs, I think the church has done a tremendous amount in welfare aid to aid the poor. <clears throat> but in the Philippines, in Mexico, in, uh, in Africa, in most, most of Latin America, the children are still being undernourished, and this affects their brain development. It affects their, their entire lives because the ability to function with the full capacity as an adult depends on the kind of, of uh, nourishment you get as a child. And so I think that as much as the church is doing in these countries, more needs to be done. And if that means a greater increase in, in um, the welfare given to these countries, but the church is already uh, subsidizing up to 90%. I mean, that's a huge investment by church headquarters for the third world, but I think the welfare of children who are going to bed every night 
hungry, and malnourished is worth increasing it to 99% if that's necessary to prevent that situation for members of the church who are innocent and defenseless. Let's take another break when we come back uh, our final segment with the historian Michael Quinn. And we'll have an email from Glenn in the uh, Uinta Basin. Uh, you can email us as well, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And you can call us toll-free 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Michael Quinn is uh, author most recently of The Mormon Hierarchy, Wealth and Corporate Power. And uh, he'll be talking uh, for the Friends of Merrill Kazir Library uh, this evening, 7 o'clock in uh, uh, Merrill Kazir Library 101, and that's free and open to the public. More following this break. I'm Nick Spitzer. I like everything we play on American Roots, but we don't play everything I like. Some tunes are too long, some styles too out there. But this week we're indulging my guilty pleasures, from old-time country to disco, and more familiar sounds. So join us on American Roots from PRX. Join us Saturday night at 8 on Utah Public Radio. My name is Dennis. I live in Trenton. I listen to Bullseye because I'm an old fart and I need to listen to what's new and hip and happening with the young kids. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week I'm talking with Kim Deal of the Breeders and the Pixies plus Oscar-nominated filmmaker Raul Peck. That's on the next Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Michael Quinn. He's a historian. His uh, latest book is the third in uh, the three-volume series, The Mormon Hierarchy. This one subtitled Wealth and Corporate Power. And uh, the Friends of Merrill Kazir Library Spring Lecture will feature Michael Quinn discussing his book. That is tonight, 7 o'clock, Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101, free and open to the public. You're welcome to join us uh, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or by phone, toll free to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. And uh, Dr. Quinn, we do have uh, this email from Glenn. Glenn says, hello, great explanation about the ties between profitable enterprises and the LDS religion. I would like to know why the church doesn't exercise the power of the priesthood and heal a few children up at Primary Children's Hospital or the burn unit at the U. Not only would such acts be positive for the church's credibility, but a guaranteed financial windfall. Well, in response to that, I could say that the um, Primary Children's Hospital is owned, uh, uh, was typically uh, owned by the LDS Church for many years. It's now part of an independent uh, umbrella organization of hospitals, uh, Intermountain Healthcare. But the LDS Church continues to um, provide significant donations for the benefit of those who uh, may not be general uh, members of the LDS Church. The, the um, cash outlay has been itemized uh, as m- more than a billion dollars over a period of years, but then those reports are limited to cash, and also 
There's emergency benefits that the church uh, welfare program has given in blankets, in food, in uh, emergency aid to many countries throughout the world in disasters short-term and long-term, including long-term famines in Africa for which the church established special uh, donation um, campaigns. So the, the church cannot heal all of the, the necessary benefits that people throughout the world, the helpless and the starving and the ill and the injured, uh, need. Um, the church alone cannot do that. But I think that the church has gone on arm in arm with other charitable organizations, with Catholic Relief Society, for example, with Jewish Relief um, and other groups in seeking to provide uh, non-governmental NGO aid, but also non-GOs, NGOs, uh, charities, on their own cannot meet adequately these needs. And so governments, in my view, have a responsibility to their own citizens to make sure that no one is starving, that no one is without health care, that no one dies alone without sufficient heat in during a winter uh, of their citizens. And that is true in the should be true in the United States. It should be true in the UK and every other country. And yet there is poverty, and there are people who die miserable deaths uh, or or who are left uncared for. So this is an obligation that no one institution can uh, address. It's a joint uh, activity of of churches, of charities that are non-religious, and of governments. But I don't think that any one group should say that you know, others are the ones who should take care of it. The government, no government should say, well, this is a responsibility of NGOs or of churches. And churches should not say that that governments can or cannot take care of the, the full burden. It has to be a joint act, a- enterprise. So the LDS Church, as generous as I, I believe the evidence indicates, it has been and continues to be, cannot fill every need. We just have uh, about a minute and a half uh, left. Um, So, uh, finally out with this long worked on volume, uh, the Mormon Hierarchy um, series, uh, Wealth and Corporate Power. What's what's next? Oh, well, I'm working on two books about post-manifesto plural marriage uh, among the Mormons, and one book will cover... 1890 to 1906, when these uh, supposedly few marriages were performed primarily by LDS church authority in one form or another. And then the second book is covering the period from 1906 to 1926, when the opposite was true, when those continued plural marriages were performed by those who did not claim to have the authority of the LDS Church, and in fact were acting against its specific um, prohibitions. And that's the rise of what 
is called Mormon fundamentalism. Um, and that's what I'm working on, and it's going to take me years to get that together. Okay. Well, well uh, good, good luck with, uh, with those projects. And uh, Michael Quinn is author previously, as you likely know, uh, Elder Statesman, a biography of J. Reuben Clark, Early Mormonism and the Magic uh, Worldview, Same-Sex Dynamics Among 19th Century Americans, a Mormon Example, and the Mormon Hierarchy series, of which Volume 3 is uh, recently out, and that's uh, subtitled Wealth and Corporate Power. That'll be the subject of uh, Dr. Quinn's lecture tonight, uh, 7 o'clock, Friends of Merrill Kazir Library Spring Lecture. That's uh, tonight at 7, Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101, free and open to the public. Michael Quinn, thanks for coming in. Thank you for the opportunity. And thanks for listening to Access U. The students at Northport High are like most high schoolers in America. When they grow up, they want to be somebody. In 10 years, I will plan on being a doctor, lawyer, a millionaire. And their principal, George Kenny, was totally behind them. So much so that he turned to an unusual strategy to help them get there. Hypnosis. What went right and then horribly wrong this week on Invisibilia. Join us tomorrow morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.